Forletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Hey, I want to welcome you to our show called Flood Investigates. We're welcome to have our guest and honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest has appeared on numerous media outlets, including as a Fox News contributor. Our guest today is, is Derek Maltz. Uh, welcome, Derek. Hello, Larry. How you doing? Thanks for inviting me to the show. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I know you're a really busy guy, Derek, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. The one thing that I always mention in, in our monologue is, um, just like you and I, we, we all agree that we believe in the success of DEA and the hard work that the agents do really go unheralded. Right, Larry. I mean, outstanding agents all over the world and making an impact every day. The problem with DEA is they haven't done a great job at, you know, patting themselves on the back. They're more concerned about doing the job than talking about the job. And that's, uh, you know, something that has hurt DEA's image around the world. But, you know, and I know the work that's getting done every day is uh, unprecedented. It's uh, it's unbelievable. And I'm proud to be part of the organization, even now as a retired guy. Yeah, and that's one of my main reasons for this podcast is to educate the public and, and a lot of people who really don't know about DEA and all the great agents that we've had that come through what made this agency, and, and I believe just like you do, a great agency. Um, Derek spent 28 years with DEA. Uh, he rose through the ranks, uh, achieving a senior executive service level. He was uh, the special agent in charge of uh, what's called the Special Operations Divisions, or SOD. He was also the chief of the New York uh, Drug Task Force, which is probably the oldest task force uh, in the United States. One of the first task forces where you, when you begin to hear uh, local and federal law enforcement task forces. I think DNA, excuse me, DEA was the pioneer in uh, expanding task forces. And, and I think uh, a lot of people uh, in different agencies picked up on it. Derek was responsible for expanding it, it, within the SOD from nine agencies to about 30, including uh, international members. Uh, the SOD was involved in many high-profile high investigations, to name a few, including the capture of El Chapo Guzman, uh, Hezbollah money laundering investigations, and it goes on. So, Derek, please please tell us uh, about your career with DEA. Larry, so first of all, thank you. It's important that the public understand what DEA does and what we're trying to do every day. So I was lucky as a young kid coming out of college. My father was a career DEA agent in New York City, and he kind of like directed me or guided me into the DEA. I had no idea. Uh, I really wasn't that like, you know, 
focused on DEA, but 1986, I was hired and I started working in the Long Island office of DEA. My father was the head of the task force at the time. As I rose my way up the ranks, I spent a period of time at the Special Operations Division from 1999 to 2002. So my eyes were kind of wide open at that point because I, I got to work in an environment with multiple agencies attacking the, uh, you know, helping to attack the cartels down in Colombia at the time. That was the main focus along with Mexico. But uh, as I got promoted in 2003, I was the head of the New York Drug Task Force. And it was kind of cool because it was my father's job. I took his seat, which is something that was really awesome. But then the big job I got was 2005 at the Special Operations Division to be the director of the place. When I got there, there were nine agencies. When I left in 2014, there were 30. So I'll explain a lot more about the evolution of SOD. I do want to tell you that in 2003, uh, while I was in New York, my brother Mike was in Afghanistan in Operation Enduring Freedom, and he died in a helicopter crash along with five other brave warriors of the Air Force. And that day has kind of changed my life in a lot of ways because I was able to see how the Special Operations Division was working prior to 9-11. And then I started like ramping up the interagency cooperation after 9-11 when I got there in 2005 because I recognized the threats in this world. So the other thing that was kind of cool is the fact I also recognized DEA's role in the global war on terror and how much they were doing around the world. So we could talk more about that as we go through. Yeah, Darren, I, I really didn't know that it was your brother that was killed. I knew there were agents killed in, the, in that helicopter crash in Afghanistan. Uh, in fact, uh, I had uh, uh, Joe Persante yesterday on the show. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was, he, he was an agent that was shot and, uh, and became blinded as a result of working over there. And these are the things that a lot of people just don't know about DEA, like your hero brother uh, and so many of them. And uh, I, I do know that uh, how important it is to make sure that none of these, none of our agents die in vain. Um, so please continue about uh, the SOD. So basically, when I got to SOD, so let me back up. SOD was created in around 1994 as a DEA division. There were some very visionary people in the DEA that understood that they had to be extremely innovative to attack the cartels, specifically at that time, the Cali and the Medellin cartels in Colombia. And they wanted to attack the command and control communications of the organization as they were set up in L.A., Miami, New York. Uh, Chicago, and Houston. They, that's where their hubs of operation were. So they set up the operation. It expanded. They started to develop the partnerships with the intel community and other law enforcement agencies, federal agencies like the FBI and U.S. Customs, IRS at the time. So I was there prior to 9-11, but I didn't really see the integration of the agency's efforts as much as it should have been. Cartel started to expand operations in Mexico, started to really push a lot of drugs into the country. So when I was able to come back in 2005, I now had the ability to try to integrate all this interagency work to try to be more effective. And I knew from 9-11 that we had no choice because terrorists were increasingly tapping into the proceeds of crime, specifically drug trafficking. 
because there was so much money, billions of dollars being generated from drug trafficking. But I also had the DEA administrator and the chief of operations that recognized that DEA's worldwide presence could actually do a lot to help, uh, you know, support the Department of Justice number one priority to prevent another 9-11. So like the DEA for years has been going after narco terrorists, right? You look at the Pablo Escobar days and you look at everything that's gone on down in Colombia and other parts of the world with these terrorists that were involved with drug trafficking and DEA a lot of experience. So, you know, DEA also attacked the, the narco terror organizations in Colombia, like the FARC and the AUC, who, who actually were emerged into the biggest, the, be the biggest drug trafficking organizations in the world. But the biggest thing that DEA offered was like 60 countries. We had DEA agents on the ground, like 90 something offices where DEA would be a force multiplier and work with the counterparts to develop intelligence, to use in informants, and help the overall government issue. So the head of DEA and chief of ops started really pushing DEA's global footprint to help on this global war on terror. So SOD expanded greatly over the years. We had some high-level successes. DEA's uh, global footprint enabled the SOD uh, agents to really work on some of these biggest transnational crime cases. So SOD and DEA got a lot of exposure, uh, you know, late 2000s, like 2007, 2008, when we arrested Victor Boot and Monza Kassar, billionaire arms traffickers that were providing weapons to extremists around the world. And we started getting a lot more support. And uh, DEA leadership actually supported the place and we worked very closely with all these agencies and tried to make a difference in the world. Uh, it was a very fascinating ex experience. Uh, and we could talk about specific cases, you know, like as an example, the whole Hezbollah initiative, which is made national news and still makes national news because nobody recognized that Hezbollah set up a trade-based money laundering operation, literally moving billions of dollars into U.S. bank accounts from Lebanon uh, to buy used cars in America to sell the used cars in West Africa, all to support Hezbollah's campaign to generate proceeds to support their radical movement. Uh, so DEA infiltrated that and did some good work um, over the years. But just to give you an idea of the magnitude, the main subject in the DEA project, Cassandra Amanjuma, he was indicted for moving $200 million a month through the scheme. He actually was moving the proceeds of 85,000 kilograms of cocaine uh, belonging to Lozetta's cartel. So you had this dangerous nexus growing between crime and terrorism. And so DEA played a significant role and still plays a very significant role around the world because of their footprint. And that's what nobody realizes, Larry. Right. One of the biggest issues was whether uh, DEA was going to be accepted into the intelligence community. Um, I know that even when I was on a job, uh, there was some uh, discussion uh, and some resistance by the already established, quote unquote, intelligence agencies in the government. And uh, I guess finally they uh, decided to give DEA a chair uh, within the intelligence community because as you and I both know, 
uh, and you mentioned 60 countries, I think they're up to 90 now, has a great worldwide uh, evident information uh, for intelligence. And who, who knows it better than DEA? And I think now because of all these high-profile cases, the changes in attitude by some of the political entities that had a stronghold in the intelligence community, now realize the value of uh, DEA. Right. And so that's an ongoing issue. It has been, I mean, as everybody knows, you know, the 9-11 Commission exposed just a breakdown in information sharing from foreign intelligence operations, connecting it to the U.S. uh, threats. And SOD helped uh, break down some of those uh, historical barriers. Unfortunately, Larry, many of those barriers are still up. It becomes a turf battle, even between law enforcement and the intelligence community. There's a different mission, focus of law and order and judicialized prosecutions, whereas the intel community has a whole different focus. So we need better leadership in Washington to kind of set the priorities and also enforce accountability in information sharing. And that's kind of one of the things that I'm very passionate about. And I, I took a lot of pride over the years to build up the capabilities. As a result, we developed a uh, deconflection platform, which later became mandated by the Attorney General and the Department of Homeland Security, that the SOD deconfliction process be utilized uh, through all the uh, federal agencies to deconflict and to share information. Uh, unfortunately, though, even though we have the mandates, people still make their unilateral decisions not to cooperate. So that's another whole story for another show about information sharing and the dangers to the country's national security uh, and the lack of leadership uh, to deal with this accountability uh, issue. So, but, but SOD had the pl- is the platform to do that. It's, it's been the platform for many years. So hopefully we can continue down that road. Yeah, I, and, and, and I think we all understand all the political issues that come up. And as soon as you get up to the top of the food chain in some of them countries, uh, then we have some resistance from within our own government. Um, and we could talk a little bit about Mexico here in a minute. So, Derek, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the capture of, of, of Guzman and how what a significant role that SOD played in that. Okay, so basically Chapo Guzman has been a target of many law enforcement agencies for so many years, right? When I was at SOD the first time around, you know, people were talking about Chapo, chasing Chapo back in the day. He's been on the run. So back when the Mexican cartel, specifically Sinaloa cartel, started dominating the cocaine and meth distribution into America from the southwest border, there was a major emphasis to get Chapo Guzman, right, and other high-level members of the Sinaloa cartel. SOD became like the information sharing hub, the synchronization center, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, try to provide the Mexico City country team the best intelligence that they could share with the counterparts to go after Guzman. Well, of course, over the years, right, we had multiple attempts. He was like, you know, the Houdini of the Mexican cartels. Every time we got close, he escaped, right? Because he was getting tipped off from the corrupt Mexican government officials, right? State, local, and federal law enforcement 
you know, the, the, the army in Mexico. And so we were having a difficult time, but there was a lot of, you know, focus and perseverance by the agents and analysts all over, not just DEA, but Homeland Security, CBP, right, the U.S. Marshals to locate him. And then ultimately we had like, I'll give you an example. We talk about the Intel community breakdown. Well, the Intel community, along with one of our sister agencies, was trying to get Chapo on their own. And they weren't they were not sharing the intel with DEA and specifically the country team in Mexico. Well, long story short, he kept getting away, right? So we had to have a meeting down in Mexico City in January of 2014 with the ambassador and all the agency leadership people. I was physically there. We had to roll up our sleeves and kind of put all the cards on the table and basically tell the intel community that this is way bigger than them. This is a U.S. national security issue. This is Chapo Guzman. He's been on the run many years. He's a top fugitive, probably the biggest drug trafficker that anybody's ever investigated in the U.S. And so the ambassador did the right thing. The agents in our DEA country team did the right thing. And even the intel community at that point did the right thing. And we all put all the cards on the table and we decided that whatever intelligence was developed at SOD, it would be presented to the Mexican country team, which was headed by the DEA regional director, Paul Crane, at the time. And Paul's decision then would be to decide who to provide that intelligence to, to make sure we were putting ourselves in the best position to get Guzman. Well, Paul had a tremendous track record working with the CMAR unit, the Mexican Marines, down in Mexico. So Paul and the folks in Mexico all the information to the admiral who ran the Mexican CMAR, and they were very successful. Not only did they, you know, when they hit the door the first time, of course, he escaped in the bathtub trap into the sewer system. And of course, they were so relentless and so talented working with the U.S. Marshals and everybody tracking Guzman and his associates. They were able to pick him up in the hotel, uh, you know, the resort hotel down there in Mexico. Uh, the first time, right? But then, of course, after he was captured and put in the top security prison in Mexico, a year later, they dug a one-mile-long tunnel to his cell where he escaped in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, and he went down into another uh, tunnel system, got on a motorcycle for a mile, and then was picked up put on a plane They had another plane, which was a diversion plane to just in case anybody was following him, and he got away. Uh, so it's an amazing story, but like a couple of things I want to highlight. It's hard to imagine that once Chapo went to jail, they bought a piece of property one mile from the prison. And every day, 24 hours a day, they had all the tunnel rats digging and digging and putting a sophisticated tunnel together right into his cell and nobody knew and so and nobody really could imagine that would happen but then to show you how good law enforcement can be when they work together after chapo escaped it was such an embarrassment to mexico but it really was disturbing to anyone that has ever worked on you know drug in drug law enforcement so the dea led at the sod operation another multi-agency um integrated, you know, synchronization of effort, and everybody came on board. But now they were much smarter because they knew the patterns of life. 
They knew the techniques. They knew the associates. We used to joke around, you know, Chapo, you know, confidants, tequila, chicas, right? Mm -hmm. Weaknesses, like any organization. So you take advantage of the vulnerabilities, right? The weaknesses. So the interagency team did the right thing and ultimately located them and captured them. And, of course, the rest is history. He was extradited. They convicted him uh, up in New York. You know, outstanding job by all the U.S. Attorney's Office and all the agents. And the witnesses that they had, Larry, also exposed the deep-rooted corruption at the highest levels of the Mexican government. And that's something even I learned so much about even after I retired, paying attention to the trial and listening to how they had like a budget of a million dollars a month just to pay off all their people that they were using in the law enforcement agencies, right? And then, of course, their former public security director, Hanero Garcia Luna, who I believe took $3 million from the cartel and ultimately was arrested and he's up in, in the U.S. now in jail. But so much information um, came out of that Chapo case uh, which, again, was a big multi-agency success with Homeland Security, CBP, FBI, everyone, you know, DEA, of course. So everybody gets a pat on the back. They didn't give up. But that's what law enforcement does, Larry, as you know, from being a career DEA agent. They don't give up. They focus on the highest level, command and control, and they look at look to wipe out the, the organization. So it was a big success for many, many people. SOD played a minor role in the sense of we synchronized effort, we tried to coordinate, but the real tough job was done in Mexico because these guys are the most relentless bad guys in the world, and so many brave warriors in Mexico have died in the line of duty going after these different cartel members. So I give my my hat goes off to the Mexican Marines. Uh, they're the they're the real heroes here in the capture of Chapo Guzman. But I was happy to be part of it, and I'm glad SOD played a vital role in helping uh, those brave warriors. Well, as I understand it, that the Mexican Marines are really uh, the most trusted of the government agencies uh, in Mexico, uh, which is, from my understanding, from uh, the agents that I know that worked with uh, in, in Mexico, uh, always gave them gave them a high mark of uh, integrity. Absolutely. I mean, they had several years of success going after the highest value targets in Mexico. Unfortunately, many of these uh, capture operations turned out to be lethal for the targets, right? So the, the Marines, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, had to kill several of these high value targets. But they also captured some very significant targets along the way and tremendous credibility. There was never any information that I received about corruption within the Marines. So it, they were a pleasure to work with. And I know the regional director and others in Mexico DEA, couldn't say enough good things about uh, the brave warriors of the, of the Mexican CMAR. They, they're almost like the Navy SEALs of the DEA, the same type of thing. All business, right? Get the done. Well, one of the one of the issues, uh, Derek, that uh, we're always interested in, and I know that you have uh, exposed a lot of issues that go on in Mexico, um, is the cartels' association with the Chinese, 
and involved in the distribution of fentanyl, you know, which is killing thousands of Americans all the time. And it just seems to me that uh, without any pressure on the Chinese government, uh, this situation is going to continue. Right. So let me give you a brief background on this. So there's nothing new about China's role in providing precursor chemicals, for example, to the cartels for a long, long time. So back in the late 90s, at the Special Operations Division, DEA came up with a very important initiative called Operation Mountain Express. Mountain Express was to attack the precursor chemicals that were coming in at the time uh, from Canada, you know, pseudoephedrine, ephedrine, which are the key precursor chemicals that was helping uh, all these mom and pop labs throughout America with the methamphetamine, right, which was a big problem and still a huge problem. So the DEA did such a good job, it kind of forced, uh, you know, the precursor chemical business, it, it, it turned it in a little different direction. So Chapo Guzman, Sinaloa cartel, other cartel leaders took advantage. So back in those days, they started building industrial-sized methamphetamine labs and started ordering, like, huge amounts of chemicals from Chinese chemical companies and these illicit organizations in China. And they started getting multi-ton quantities, not just from China, but India and Bangladesh and other countries in Asia. But China provided them significant amount of chemicals. So, so what happened was, I'll give you an example. And this is where, as the head of SOD, it opened up my eyes, right? So in 2007, there was a seizure of $207 million in cash in Mexico City. Most of that money was in $100 denominations. And nobody understood, like, who the hell has that kind of money? And so it turned out that they arrested a Chinese national in Mexico City. And guess what he was doing? He was the main broker for the chemical importation into Mexico for the cartel's lab operations. But at the same time, like right, right, I'm sorry, right before that, we hit a fentanyl lab in Mexico in Toluca, Mexico, DEA Chicago had a case because all these people were dying from this fentanyl, which was new on the streets. Like we, we didn't hear about that. You know, so this was kind of like my first experience with it. So the DEA in like 2005 did this big investigation and identified a fentanyl lab in Toluca, Mexico. So this was kind of like the early phases, right? So we all started getting a better handle. But then flash forward, Meth business started booming in America. We started seeing more and more seizures of meth and more and more people addicted on meth. But then what happened was in like 2010, we started seeing the explosion of synthetic cathinones and synthetic cannabinoids, bath salts, K2, spice, hitting the streets of America. And all those chemicals were made in China. And people were getting really, really impacted by this death respiratory issues, cardiac issues, and nobody understood it. But then in like 2011, 2012, for the first time, we started seeing people dying all over the Northeast in Florida from pure fentanyl coming from China, right through the internet. And it became a national uh, initiative for us. We called it Operation Death Merchant in like 2012, 2013. I'm sorry, Operation Deadly Merchant. And we started working with some really bright agents like DEA West Palm Beach had an agent who was infiltrating the lab operators over in uh, in China. So anyway, 
what happened, Larry, is then, of course, the cartels are in the business to make money. So they saw this as a golden opportunity. So many people addicted to opioids in America, thanks to the corporate cartels who dumped 100 billion opioids into the streets of America for a nine year period. So unfortunately, many people got addicted to opioids, so they needed to get their fix. So the cartels took advantage of that. The cartels hooked up with the Chinese, started importing these kilo quantities of fentanyl from the Chinese and basically mixing this stuff up and put it into heroin at first. Then they started making counterfeit pills. They call them the oxy pills. And so they were blitzing the United States uh, consumer market. And then we started seeing people dropping left and right. Now, if you move forward in this whole problem, and this is what nobody talks about, and this is what really is disturbing. The cartels now are exclusively relying on the Chinese in Mexico and throughout the United States to provide all the money laundering services. So if they're doing the money laundering services and the chemicals, they control the two vital pieces of the puzzle to, that support this drug crisis, right? And, and there's little things like, Larry, for example, all the drug paraphernalia that's being used in these labs in America, the heroin mills. It's all coming from China. You look at the marijuana grow operations. These guys are buying houses in Colorado, in Washington State, in Oregon. They're buying these beautiful homes and making them into these huge marijuana grow operations and sending this high pure marijuana throughout America. So the Chinese are very intricately involved in the drug crisis. Nobody's talking about it. It's starting to come out now. There's some national news that is starting to talk about it. We've been banging this bell for like three years now. And believe me, this is learning experience for me. I'm not a Chinese expert. I'm not a Communist Party expert. But as a law enforcement executive retired, this is like common sense. You see what's going on. There's billions of dollars being made. But at the same time, and more importantly, the Chinese are undermining our national security they're weaponizing drug addiction, and they're, they're, it's a disguise under the radar to kill our people. And that's why the CDC, when they put out stats, over 81,000 dead in the 12-month period ending May of 2020, that's 210 people a day dying from opioids, specifically fentanyl, right? And this is coming from China. They're, they're an adversary. Now, one other thing I want you to know because I want to show you how good the Mexican cartels are. So the Trump administration did put some pressure on the Chinese government, and it appears that they did crack down a little bit. However, that just provided the Mexican cartels more opportunities, because now they're making their own fentanyl in labs in, in Mexico, because they're getting the precursor chemicals from China, not just for meth, but for now fentanyl, which is really scary, because they don't know what they're doing. There's no quality control in the production of these fentanyl pills and this mixture that they're putting out on the streets of the country. So we have a very, very dangerous national security situation. Larry, the thing that the people got to realize, let's just talk common sense here. Like when I was an agent growing up, if you seize five pounds of meth, that was a huge case, right? And, you know, you worked in Pittsburgh. So, you know, I know Pittsburgh forever has worked on lab cases. You know, a 10-pound meth case was huge. 
Well, guess what? Let me just tell you what's going on now. Just last week, Dallas reported the biggest seizure in the history of North Texas, 1,900 pounds of meth. Basically, in December, CBP reported a 1,900 pounds of meth seizure, another 2,500 pounds of meth seized at El Paso. Then you had DEA out in October, the record level seizure in the history of the country, like 3,000 pounds of meth. And it was another one in San Diego, you know, a couple thousand pounds of meth. Atlanta DEA seized earlier in the year 2,000 pounds, 1,800 pounds. So meth is being produced in these industrial labs in Mexico because they're getting a robust and, and steady supply of chemicals from the Chinese uh, criminal organizations and other groups, but not just China. And this is creating a huge problem in America that people are not paying attention to. Well, that's for sure. And and I do know, uh, even on my, uh, my investigative business, which I now have, uh, I'm running into a lot of these uh, overdose death cases uh, with counterfeit pills being laced with uh, fentanyl. And I know that uh, they're, they're, they're all over the country. And I, I think this is a way of really trying to destroy America by providing this poison, and it's killing our youth. And I think that that's probably the strategy of the Chinese government, just as we what we're facing right now in the pandemic. And unless our government decides to take a strong action against them, uh, unfortunately, this, this whole situation is going to continue. And then the lack of news media coverage uh, continues. And I don't know what they're afraid of and why they won't disclose this to um, our communities in the, in the United States. But, you know, I'm sure people would be shocked once they tune into our podcast to hear you talk about all the things that are going on in this country, and we ain't hearing about it. And that's the unfortunate part about this. Yeah, Larry, you couldn't have said it any better. So let me give you a couple more details. Back in the day, DEA had a very aggressive strategy going after Afghani Taliban kingpins, right? And we learned in those cases that it was common that the, these kingpins understood that selling heroin to the West was a jihad against the West, right? It was a way to make a lot of money and to harm and undermine the stability of America and the West, right? So the Chinese are pretty much copying that playbook, right, with the drug epidemic. But just to give you an idea, because you mentioned counterfeit pills, and this fascinates me. That's why I, I obsess on this particular statistic. So the Phoenix DEA has been tracking the drug seizures of the Mexi-Oxy pills, M30 pills, right? So in 2015, they seized zero pills. In 16, it was up to 20 grand. In 17, 54,000. In 18, 380,000. In 19, 1.4 million pills. And in 2020, they seized 5.6 million pills just in Phoenix and just with DEA. Now, based on you know your experience in your world, you, you brought it up, this is now all over the country. That's only one place they're making these seizures. So you can imagine how many of these pills are getting in because the Chinese cartel, I'm sorry, the Mexican cartels bought by the pill presses and they make these huge quantities of the pills that they're pushing out into our communities. So it's a really big national security issue. 
and the mainstream media is not talking about it. For one, they don't understand it. They still think like this is how behind the times they are. They still think the drug crisis in America is because doctors are overprescribing. No, that was a problem 15, 20 years ago that should have been addressed. But the corporate cartels are so powerful, nobody wanted to go after them. Okay, they've been fined billions of dollars over the years, but it hasn't really stopped their manufacturing and distribution of these these opioids that addicted our population. So they were a big, big catalyst. And then the Colombians with the white heroin back in the 90s and then the Mexicans, when they started doing the white heroin, you know, in the 2000s and 2010. And then it turned into this fentanyl stuff. So it's a very big national security problem. And I hope that something can be done about it because we're losing ground big time. Yeah. And, and that's and that's always the problem uh, is exposing the corruption that goes on in our own country, uh, because none of these big farmer execs, none of them have been put in prison. They're only uh, calling their companies criminal and then they get a fine and they get a slap on the hand and they're let go. So until our government gets serious enough about putting these uh, corporate cartels, as you call them, and they are, uh, who have spread poison uh, throughout our country, unless they start getting attacked like the Mexican cartel, uh, it's going to continue. And I know that uh, they were even exposed on 60 Minutes. You know, some of our agents uh, that were involved in those cases really exposed it. And again, we're still seeing the same issues come up. So unless somebody gets uh, real, uh, nothing's going to change. So now that, you know, we've been discussing Mexico, um, and there's some recent turn of events that happened. Uh, I know DEA had arrested the defense secretary uh, of Mexico, Sinfuegos, uh, in L.A. And then all of a sudden, uh, this guy is uh, returned to Mexico under the orders of Attorney General Barr. Um, so now we begin to see what's, what is really going on. Uh, were we afraid of hurting Mexico relations, even though that this guy was a facilitator for drug traffickers in Mexico, spreading the poison here in the USA? Yeah, exactly, Larry. So it gets worse because not only did we send him back to Mexico and he's out and he's free, uh, the Mexican president signed a new law that's a blueprint for the cartels to operate with impunity. It's a breakdown in the rule of law. And... The only people that are benefiting from his new law, which I'll explain in a minute, are the cartels, the corrupt Mexican officials and the Chinese who are looking to destroy our country. So going back now with this whole situation, right, you know, it's funny because let me go back to something we just talked about. When I was an agent and when you were an agent growing up, we were always taught to work. We were always taught to work the cases to the highest levels, right? The source of supply, right? You work from the street right to the source of supply. You take out the network. In the case of the corporate cartels, just because I wanted to address that, we get it to these manufacturers and these distributors, and no one gets arrested. No one gets indicted. So it's kind of it's, it's, it's against everything we've all learned, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I wanted to bring that up only because I, it was very applicable. But with the cartels and the corruption, the only way these businesses can sustain the level of operations 
is working with the corrupt government officials, not just in Mexico, but throughout Central America and South America and other parts of the world. We have corruption all over the place at high levels. In West Africa, in his example, they're stashing all the drugs over there. But in this particular case, they actually signed a law which now requires all the foreign agents in Mexico, not just DEA, the foreign security agents have to coordinate all their efforts through the Secretary of Foreign Relations Unit, the SRE, they call it, which is our equivalent like the State Department. They have no judicial teeth. They are a bureaucratic government agency that's not involved with law enforcement. And this is very dangerous. This is dangerous to our agents. It's dangerous to our informants. It's dangerous to the families of the informants, the families of agents, which we take very, very serious, right? So the DEA is not going to want to put anyone at risk. So it's going to actually impact negatively all these bilateral successes that we've had over the years, right? Yeah. So yeah. Mexico, in my opinion, is taking full advantage of America during these turbulent times. And the only beneficiary is, like I said, all these corrupt people. So the U.S. has to respond aggressively. They have to continue to understand that the national security of Americans must always be a priority, not the you know relationships with a corrupt government. And this is the problem. And I'm not suggesting this is an easy thing to deal with, Larry. Right. I'm no expert on you know dealing with these countries at that level. I never worked in the State Department, and I know it's important to have political relations with these countries. But at some point, you got to look at how many people are dying in America, and you got to be a little bit more aggressive. You got to hold back some money. I mean, it's talk now they want to turn over $4 billion to all these countries in Central America and Mexico. And that's fine if you want to deal with all these national security issues, but there's got to be accountability for the money. You can't just give it to these corrupt government officials because the people that need the money don't get it. And so the, the Secretary of Defense, Cienfuegos, was involved at the highest levels of the cartels, was indicted, and now the Mexican president wants to kick dirt in the face of DEA and put out all over the news that DEA fabricated the evidence. They had intercepts, Larry, Blackberry intercepts. That's all over the, you know, all over the uh, public you know, domain because the Mexicans put it out where this guy's coordinating activities with the cartels. So it's a bunch of BS, and, and DEA should do a better job on the public relations campaign because right now anybody in the world thinks DEA fabricated evidence on this unbelievable case that they did. It's it's really a disgrace and it gets my blood pressure going because, you know, AMLO has this hugs for thugs policy. My policy is we want to keep hugs for thugs out of America. We want to keep the bugs, the thugs, and the drugs out of America, right? That's my thing. Uh, and so, you know, this Southwest border issue is a huge issue, but we can't be soft on these narco-terrorists because they're killing Americans like we've never seen before. Well, there's no doubt uh, about that. And there's a lot of thing that people don't understand is that DEA does not just operate and go and arrest people. You know, they work within the confines of the Department of Justice, federal grand juries, U.S. attorney's offices. So there's a lot of controls that happen. So the evidence... Uh, against most of these drug traffickers, 
uh, are overwhelming. Uh, and we don't lose cases like that. Uh, in fact, I know even in uh, some of the cases I've been involved with, you know, I, I worked in D.C., Baltimore, and Pittsburgh, and then got involved in some overseas cases. But I know the power of uh, the government under the Department of Justice. Uh, things have changed now. And certainly, you know, we looked at up to the prosecutors when we worked with them hand in hand. But now uh, it, the Department of Justice has become so politicized that they have taken uh, the teeth, I should say, out of going after these major traffickers, including uh, the traffickers in Mexico, especially the Mexican high-level government officials. So when when you hear about this, a, a lot of people just don't understand our system, especially in the federal system, when DEA, FBI, whoever, have to deal with the U.S. Attorney's Office in that jurisdiction in order to get a grand jury indictment. So it just doesn't happen by DEA doing their own thing. Right. Yeah, exactly, Larry. And so, like, when you talk about a federal intercept, a Title III investigation, as you know very well, you don't just say, I want to start listening to somebody's phone or watching their BlackBerry messages. You have to go through an unbelievable process which is scrutinized not only by the local United States Attorney's Office, but Washington, D.C. and the Department of Justice. There's so many people reviewing the evidence and the information. DEA is not doing it alone. So thanks for you know bringing that point up. But the thing is, Larry, that I believe Mexico has poked the DEA bear now because DEA agents aren't just going to accept this, right? They're going to figure out ways on how they're going to continue to expose the corruption. They have plenty of witnesses. They have plenty of evidence. Now they're going to start doing a better job of exposing how corrupt these government governments really are. So it should be an interesting story moving ahead. Uh, it hasn't been a good story the past couple of months. So let's ta- let's uh, let's pay attention to it and, and move forward. You know. Yeah, and I think um, you know some of these uh, politicians in Mexico. Uh, I, I saw a quote on La Political Online, and uh, it, it really amazes me that somebody could even say that uh, DEA's action can't be reduced to just catching famous drug dealers that are featured in series and movies. So, you know, is there a real understanding, or do they think that we're about making movies versus real life and, and dealing with, you know, thousands of Americans' deaths every year? And, and this is the attitude that we're seeing. I'm hoping that um, our Department of Justice under the new AG, Garland, will continue the progress in terms of going after these people who are poisoning Americans. I hope that uh, they do not relent uh, because of political issues. Uh, If not, we're heading for the crash of Rome uh, in generations to come. Yeah, I mean, they first have to take the time to understand the crisis, to understand how it's it's integrated with terrorists and the radical agendas around the world. They have to understand how uh, the the amount of money that's being generated from drug trafficking. You know, the last estimate I saw was like four hundred billion dollars a year by the United Nations. They came up with that estimate, and and the amount of money that these these bad guys, these transnational criminals have access to 
through drug trafficking, but more importantly, the families and communities in America that are being destroyed. And they don't even understand what's happening. They don't understand, like, it's not the overprescribing right now. That's not the issue. The issue is the cartels and China. So thank you for really taking the interest in this topic because it's starting to really emerge, but more and more people have to understand it. Well, with with people like you, Derek, um, it's you that provide the educational information out to the public going on a lot of these major news media outlets and exposing uh, what should have been exposed by DEA long time ago. Um, and for whatever reason, whatever their reluctance is, uh, you know, really has to change. And I don't know if that's ever going to happen because of, you know, political implications. Um, but, um, you know, we have to thank the thousands of our agents who came through before us today, tomorrow, because of their mission and their dedication to stopping the drugs coming into this country. Um, although we could probably talk, you know, another hour or two just on the political side, uh, dealing with other agencies, budgets, competition, et cetera. Um, I, I think it's, it's an awakening. And I know, uh, Derek, you're on the forefront of awakening uh, America. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Larry. One of the things that I try to do is just provide as much information as I can. I stay very current. I integrate, interact with not just the DEA agents, but other agents in Homeland Security and different agencies uh, on a daily basis to try to really understand the emerging trends and the complexities. And then there's a, another whole element that we didn't discuss too much is the use of the advanced technologies that law enforcement is now like moving into the dark in regards to being able to infiltrate the bad guys' communications pursuant to court authorization from judges. And that's another whole story. It's another topic for another day. But the reality is, is if law enforcement does not have the tools and does not have updated laws, okay, we're not dealing with 1968 rotary phones anymore with very advanced encrypted communications, apps are popping up all over the place every day that we can't. And that's how the Chinese, by the way, are beating us bad with the money laundering. They're collecting the cash in the U.S. and then they're moving money through WeChat and other applications through their bank accounts in China. So if they pick up 500 grand in America for the drug traffickers, they move the money from their account in China to another bad guy's account in China, and then they use that money to buy consumer goods or whatever they're going to buy to ship to Mexico or Colombia, South America, and that's how they move their money in these trade-based schemes. But they're not putting the cash in U.S. banks because we have strict laws about currency transactions. So they're very, very smart, very sophisticated. We're always chasing them, but we're not getting the full support now from the Congress and from the government agencies, they, the leaders need to wake up a little bit and understand the complexity of these threats. Yeah, your your knowledge and expertise has been enlightening uh, for a show. And this is one of the reasons why um, I wanted to start this podcast was to expose 
what's going on in this country, dedicated agents like you and others that really know the real deal of what's taking place. And I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on our show today. Uh, and I know uh, there may be other opportunities, and I'm hoping that there are, and we would love to have you back on our show. Yeah, let me know, Larry. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of topics. It's getting more and more complex, and we got to just keep the fight. And I appreciate the fact that you are highlighting the work of the DEA uh, and our partner agencies because the public needs to understand it a lot better. You know, DEA is a global agency that really does phenomenal work. Unfortunately, like I said, they're not very good at taking credit for their work. They're more concerned about doing the work instead of talking about the work. Derek, um, is, is there a way if, if the news media or anybody else that would like to hear you speak or get in touch with you, uh, that, that uh, there's a way to, to get in touch with you and, and have you do a presentation? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I get messages all the time through LinkedIn or through Twitter or Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty open. You know, people that want to find me can find me. Uh, and I'm very, very interested in doing that stuff. I'll give you one quick story before we go because it really touched me. So two weeks ago, I was down in the Palm Beach uh, World Affairs Council doing a talk on transnational crime. The next day I get home, I get an email from a lady who her brother was in my session. This lady was from Connecticut. Her 23-year-old son died of a pure fentanyl overdose, and she watched my uh, Zoom interview, and she was fascinated to learn so much more about China and the cartels. And now I connected her with DEA New England. She's meeting with the drug czar in New Hampshire, and we're kind of supporting her because she lost her son, you know, a college athlete and a really good kid. And she's devastated. So she's a, she's a woman on a mission. But because I was speaking, I was able to connect with this lady through her brother. So that's the reason I do what I do, to try to connect to other people like this and try to just spread the word. Yeah, Derek. I mean, there's thousands of families like that. And I hope that thousands of families can hear you and so that these families can get back to the politician so they can hear all of us. And again, thank you for coming on. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to fcisllc.com.